Okay, this is the obligatory warning. So welcome to Uneducators. There's two things. Chris likes to swear a lot, uh, so just be warned. And secondly, that we don't represent our employers in any way. We are talking off the cuff about how we think education should or shouldn't be done and quite possibly talking about it from an idealistic point of view. So bear that in mind. We hope you enjoy this episode. This could work or it could not work. I'm not sure because it's the first time I've really used this mic for this kind of thing. What right. I bought it for was to take to Donegal so I didn't have to keep carting this mic back and forth with the mic yes. stand and stuff. But um, I got to Donegal and I was doing an office hours on Monday and oh my word, Adam, I was going like, sorry, Adam, could you just repeat that? And you know that we sometimes have our dropouts yeah, and, and we, we know that the other person's talking. And, yes. and it's like, you know, it's great. And it works for the podcast because as long as you're saying something smart, it doesn't really matter that I can't hear you. And then when you come back on, I just trust that you were saying something smart, right? And the flip side of that is you trust that I'm saying something smart. So, you, you know, if you don't really hear it, it doesn't matter. But you will hear it when you listen back to the recording. But when you're trying to do a tutorial with somebody, it's impossible. So yeah. I was talking to this guy, Greg Reed, who's super smart. Um, he runs a company called 100 Studios. Uh, or 100 Studio or 100 Studios, I'm not sure. But anyway, awesome. And I kept having to repeat himself and repeat himself. And it took us two hours. Oh, my word. That's not good. Yeah. And it was meant to be like a 45-minute, you know, office hours chat, catch-up, stroke, whatever. And eventually I said to him, okay, phone me. Just phone me. And so he called me. And then, oh, man, the, even the phone wasn't working. <laughs> I think what's happened is we've gone from having amazing internet in Donegal to staycations oh. killer everyone is on a staycation yeah. everyone has gone to donegal even the local people in donegal and i include myself in in amongst these people now um are like would you all just bugger off because you know we can't use the internet you're taking over everything and it's just frustrating you know so in the end i, I went to donegal for sunday night monday and back on tuesday <laughs> Oh, I was there for one day, <laughs> one full day. It was That's insane. Ridiculous. Um, so it was a bit frustrating. Um, but anyway, we came back. We did fire up the pizza oven. Oh, yeah. you were. Oh, I saw the pictures of it being built. Yeah, it's finished. And Caitlin really wanted to, to get it lit before she went. So we had a pizza oven uh, extravaganza on the Tuesday. It was amazing. It was really good fun. So um, And then did I tell you that we built an outdoor bath? No. <laughs> Okay, so someone was ripping out a bath, right? A metal bath. You can only oh, do yeah, this yeah. with a metal bath, right? Okay. Listeners, you can't do this with a plastic bath. Um, well, but you could use a ceramic bath, though, couldn't you? Yeah, oh, no way. You're breaking <laughs> no, up totally again. Now. You were presumably saying you could use a ceramic <laughs> one. Um, anyway, yeah, we put, got this bath. We put it in the back of a trailer and you build a fire under it. And it takes about two hours to heat up, apparently. But once it starts heating up, it is literally boiling. You're literally sitting in boiling water. Um, but you can sit outdoors and look at the sun and it's amazing. So I haven't actually been in the bath yet. But I mean, I've been in our bath, but not that bath. <laughs> So, yeah, so it's funny. I, anyway, I, yeah, I hate baths. I just don't like them at all. No, nah, I'm not a big bath so, fan myself. I like showers. I, yeah. don't know if, I don't know if I could sit. I suppose if I imagined it was a pool and I'm sitting outside. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had a bit of, um, you know, that kind of, well, I've now lost my pens. Give me a second. So did you come back? I need back my little your... pencil case. Oh, nice. Did you come back on your own? It's then? a media, media temple pencil oh. case. No, we all had to come back because Caitlin was getting the Liverpool ferry last night. So we dropped them to the ferry um, last night at 10.30. So they were getting the boat to the Lake District. So oh, right, wow. 
Anyhow, um, my thoughts on the conversation this week. Right, first things first. I have started to identify some um, recording people for the for the opening sequence. You lie. Right? <laughs> and I swear to God, it's the truth. I think I have it on my iPad. Uh, I mean, it really is quite a quest. You've got to go and listen to all these people. You get people who are like sort of like 20 saying that they can do an older voice and you're like, no, you can't. Um, you know, there's just something about the granularity of someone's voice when they're older that does not sound like a 20 year old trying to sound old. Um, and there's like amazing, there's different people who do Gandalf and... You know, you can get somebody saying, you know, well, what, what, I don't know enough about Gandalf to know what to say, but they'll sort of do a personalized message in the style of Gandalf. Oh. And I don't know what Gandalf says, but, you know, you can get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I found some people, the range of prices is anywhere between sort of like sort of 16 pounds to about sort of 30, 40, 50 quid. Okay. Um, what they do is they do it per number of words. So like yeah. you get 50 words for, let's say, 16 quid. So if so you like a telegram words. <laughs> yeah, but a bit like a telegram. So we should add a note to the telegram. Uh, I've got to just in the next few days do um, show notes. That's got to be my job on educators show notes to telegram. We need to explain what the telegram is. And I need to put in some voice actors into the show notes because then you'll believe me that it's true. And then I think I'm going to do a job lot and pay Ross to edit like six episodes and put the stuff in. And the other sure. thing I think I might ask him to do is to, to bleep out the swearing. Um, that would be cool if we could. It would be good. Yeah, I think it would be good because like I have a tendency to swear. But when I listen back to it, I mean, I think it's really funny and I listen to myself. Right. But I told you last week I got this email from the person who was annoyed about the swearing in the newsletter. No. I'll tell you that. No. Oh, I didn't unsubscribe on the School of Design newsletter because I'd linked to an article called the, the, the Creative Bullshit Industrial Complex or something. It was an article in which the word bullshit was the title. Sure. And really, I had no choice but to use the word bullshit. I suppose I could have written it B-U-L-L star star star. Or, yeah, or I mean, that's what I would have done, but... Yeah, well, that's not what I would do. So I had just written this really interesting article by a guy called Sean Blander. Um, and it's called The Creative Bullshit Industrial Complex or something. And it was really interesting. I shall um, add that to the list. So it's the bullshit show notes. Um, um, bullshit. It's got, it's it's got going to be so much. If Ross is going to do bleeping, this is even this episode already has about 50. Does bullshit count? Does yeah, that of course count? it does. Oh, okay. Jeez. Okay. Um, I have now got it down to I don't say Jesus Christ anymore. I say, oh, my word, or, you know, I, you know, Very good. I, I Very don't good. say, oh, my God. I've tried to get that down to, oh, my word. So I've, I've fixed that. Yeah. Um, well, my, I say, I was, oh, my days, which makes people crack up because then they think I'm Jewish or something. <laughs> no. Well, no, I don't. Really? Know Does that sound Jewish? No. But that's Only if you someone... kind of went, oh, my days, a bagel, schmegel, or something <laughs> like that. It's you know? so weird. Yeah. So anyway, but yes. But anyway, the football, I'm often I'm there going, oh my days. Yeah, I've heard you say that loads of times, and I used to say it too, and Ross and Hannah say it as well. But anyway, I've got managed to get that out. But I just thought, you know, this guy, he he sent me an email and he said, you know, you might think it's smart to swear, but I don't think it's smart to swear, and you know, and I will not tolerate this kind of language in an email newsletter. And he was really quite angry about it, um, and he said, oh. and I hereby unsubscribe from your newsletter. Um, and I, you know, I do not normally reply to people, but I sent him an email and said, look, uh, Ken, I apologize. It was actually the title of the article. 
Um, and, you know, I felt, you know, I could censor it, but I don't, that's not the way I operate. And I just said, I want to apologize because, you know, I didn't mean to upset you or, you know, I wasn't wanting him to resubscribe. I don't really care. Um, but I wanted to apologize at least, you know, and I did try one year to not swear, but I managed about five minutes. And then I was like, fuck's sake. And I was like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Fuck, I've just said it. Fuck. Oh. And then I was like five or six in a row. And oh, it was crazy. But yeah, you, well, you know, you've got to retain your personality. We you talked know? about it before, didn't we? In the, very, in the minor shows, because I don't swear. Yeah. And, um, but we talked about whether that would be a problem for you because it would curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, and, so and I think decided... the way to do it is to bleep it out. Yeah, I know? think that would be cool. Because I did, yeah. I mean, the last episode, I found it quite hard personally to listen to because of the amount that you were swearing. And I was. Uh, no, we don't show, want that you know? happening. So, but that's yeah. me. Because I just find. But you're a co host, you know, so you don't know, really want to, you know. And the reason I started thinking about it was I've been listening to this podcast literally on repeat called um, How I Built This with Guy Raz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You sent it to me because you were talking about The Impossible Burger. Yes. Um, and I, I've just become hooked on that show. It's amazing. Um, I've listened oh, to I the literally story only of... listened to The Impossible Burger one, but I should... Oh, there's so many more. There's like Swell, the lady who made the Swell water bottle. There are the guys behind Sub Pop Records. Um, oh, right. There are... It's two guys. Um, there is... What else have I listened to recently? Um, I've listened to loads of episodes because I've been driving around in Donegal because, you know, sometimes I actually... You know those adverts where somebody goes in a car and, you know, they're selling you a car because of the experience of you driving around. I've always looked at those adverts and thought, like, who would do that? Who would go out for a drive for, like, 45 minutes just to be in a car? And I've actually started doing that so I can listen to podcasts. Because cool. if I do them in the house, I get distracted yep. and... I find myself re rewinding and rewinding and rewinding. Yeah, but yeah. it is such a good podcast, Adam. You should listen to it. Oh, I will. Um, Put it on. It's I called will. How I Built This. Now, there's two aspects to it. There's How I Built This, which is like the Impossible Burger. It's someone talking through the challenges of building something. And for me, I've actually started listening to mostly those episodes. Sure. Then there is How I Built Resilience. And I'm not sure if that's just a new thing for the pandemic or it was always a part of it. I'll be honest with you, the How I Built... built um, resilience for me is not so interesting. Um, it's more the startup journeys that I'm fascinated. Yeah, about. totally. I would just say the same. Cool. So, for example, the swell lady today is talking about, you know, she went and got 3000 bottles or something in one color blue. And then she was almost going to be featured by Oprah. And they said, you know, this is great. We're going to feature it in the magazine. Send us, you know, but we need a few more colors. So just send them through. And she was like, I'm standing in the warehouse, which is her house. And I'm looking and all we have left is the blue. Um, and when you hear these kinds of stories, you think this is amazing, right? We've all been there. If you've done startups, you know, you've sort of like, you're not really lying to somebody, you know, because your warehouse is your kitchen um, and you are looking out into your warehouse and you only see blue because that's the truth, right? But you're not telling them we've only ever made blue ones, you know? And so she then goes and gets like six other colors made. She buys herself a Pantone swatch. She learns about color and... It's fascinating, and I just love it as a podcast, oh, cool. and you should get into a few more episodes. So far be it from us to tell you to listen to other podcasts, but How I Built This with Guy Raz is amazing. And so are you? do they bleep out any swearing in that show? Is that what you're saying? No. What, what, what happened and what made me think about it was there was an episode, and I can't remember who it was with, where he does a bit of an intro. And he says, you know, hi, I'm Guy Raz, and this is NPR, and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, now, on this episode, just to let you know that there is a bit of swearing. So if you're listening with kids in the background, et cetera. Hmm. And I just thought, oh, man, that would be every episode with me, you know. Yeah, that um, was, no, it's true. So I just, I did notice it in the last episode more than before. And because I sent it to a few people, I, I, had to, I was quickly had to send them a message saying, oh, you don't, you know, don't listen to this out loud. 
Yeah, know? yeah. Well, maybe I, you know, I spoke to Ross last night. He was over because Caitlin was leaving. So we had a dinner the fam as a family. And I said to him, okay, we need to talk about the podcast and, you know, get you to do some work on it. Because I'd quite like to pay him, but you don't yeah. need to worry about that. I'll pay him out of my business, cool. um, which is really shifting money around the Murphy household, really. Yeah, um, I know that feeling. <laughs> he would, he would, you, but you're paying for it anyway, right? So I'm thinking I may as well get something out of it, right? <laughs> uh, you know, he could do some editing. He'll be listening to this, which is really funny. Um, I, the reason I had asked him as well was that I have an, an idea for another podcast that's a bit like how I built this, yeah. um, with stories of startups, but very design focused. Because, you know, for example, in the Swell one today, Guy Raz talks about this one as being about design and design is really important. And he starts to touch on design, but, but I know I don't mean this in a rude way to Guy Raz, but he talks on it about it as not somebody who's a designer sure you know he says design is really important and it's like not just the look of the bottle it's like the copy on the website it's everything etc um and i thought yeah there's there's a story to be told there for sure with more design focused episodes but what i'd said to ross was if you listen to, to how i built this um adam they must have a fortune for each episode because each episode has a yeah. different band and behind the person talking there's music Yes. And so as you're listening, cause I don't know if you noticed with the Impossible Burger one, but as you're listening to every bit of the discussion, there's music in the background. And then at yeah. the end, they say, with great thanks to Adam Proctor for, you know, contributing to the episode. And the band on this episode was Pimon, uh, amazing band from Australia. Uh, and I said to Ross, maybe we could do something like this. And then I thought, this is insane. I just, it would take budget would have to be insanely large <laughs> you know? yeah we definitely need to get some sponsors at that point <laughs> yeah totally anyway um we're talking to sponsors patreon.com slash proctorbot yeah um adam always says patron but it's patreon okay well, it's patreon. Michael, though. why did they do that though why did it's, they do that i think they probably did that because patron.com was probably taken or yes, something so you know so it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com patreon.com slash proctorbot p-r-o-c-t-e-r-b-o-t i still haven't actually signed up to become one of your friends um and i think at this moment in time you only have two friends i have two yes yeah so i need to get my shit together <laughs> oh there's another swear word that needs to be it's gonna be out. quite hard to bleep a lot of your stuff out you're gonna give you're gonna have to pay ross a lot of money <laughs> i was just wondering if we could have like a kind of a level of you know like the f word is a total no-no the c word is definitely a no-no um like the word like a uh, like bugger, would that be a no-no? I think that's okay. Like bugger off. I told him to bugger off. I think that's is that okay. Is that okay? Okay, bullshit. That's that's a no-no. Yeah, that's a no. And shit as well. That's a no. Okay, so we need a like a a, a clean list or a white list or a black list or whatever. <laughs> oh my word, it's going to be a nightmare. Anyway, my suggestion: sixteen minutes and twenty-five seconds into this episode, because I'm not sure when we'll start, is. That we talk about GPT three. Yeah, so we we and we need that for your to edit your podcast because it would be able to automatically bleep out your swearing. <laughs> mm. So Chris, tell us what GPT three is as far as you're concerned. I'm not sure that GPT three. Maybe it would be able to do that. Maybe you could actually set up a thing and you could say, every time you hear the word um, boop, you know, bleep it uh, out. Yeah, no, it couldn't because it's it's. Um... That's not what it can understand. I don't think it can't understand audio. 
Yeah, it's what's interesting about it is it can do certain types of things with language, but certain other types of things with language it can't do. Um, it's very specific. So what makes GPT-3 interesting, I think, is it's been trained on a large corpus of, uh, and a corpus is just a fancy word for a like a large volume of stuff, right? Yep. And so it's been trawling through as an artificial intelligence type machine learning thing. It's been trawling through like um, crowd sourced. Uh, there's a name I put into my um, microblog um, that explained it a bit better than I'm doing now. But basically, it's been trained on a massive corpus of language, yeah. you know, conversations and web pages and all this kind of stuff. And then what you then do is you can train it on a, a subset of language. Like, for example, you could say, here's everything Steve Jobs ever said. OK, now I'd like you to talk like Steve Jobs. And because it's been trained on the big corpus of language and it's now been sort of accelerated on the Steve Jobs stuff, you can then have a conversation with Steve Jobs. And it's very convincing. Yeah, it, seems, it sounds interesting. It's according to the, one of the articles I read said it had ingested effectively all the text that was available on the web, on the Internet. Yeah. That so, that so if I go to uh, Mr. Murphy dot uh, micro dot blog isn't it is that what it is yeah, yeah so if we go to mr murphy dot microblog right over the last 48 hours there's a there's an article called dead mentors it's only my second post on microblog um, and i've got some more that i'm posting hopefully today over the last 48 hours i've enjoyed a fascinating conversation on twitter with one of my graduates so this is jordan moore who i've been having lots of fascinating conversations super smart guy uh works for a company called dawson andrews in belfast and I don't know how he's got access to the GPT-3 thing because I filled oh, in the... It, um, yeah, they, get, they basically released the API to some developers oh, a, week, so you, a week ago. So okay. I guess you have to request access. To the I've API. requested access. I filled in all the paperwork and said, you know, here's what I want to do. Actually, I requested access so that I could explore fictional persona. Oh, yeah. Um, so when I filled in the form, I talked about my record label, Falt. And I said, you know, a lot of the people in the record label were fake. Uh, they were invented personas, um, and I'd quite like to explore that again uh, in terms of here's a person, their characteristics are this, and can you create some conversational material from this person? Yeah. And I don't know whether I just have to wait or, you know, I didn't, you don't get a reply or anything. You just fill in a form um, on the web. Have you done it? No, because I just saw that they'd said that like oh, it was sort of finished in May. From So GPT-3 was like came out in May and a week or so ago, soon July, they gave um, selected members of the public access to the model. Right. Uh, so I've been reading about this the, for a while. Yeah. Just yeah, samples go, of, yeah, so they gave selected members, samples of the text generated have been circulating widely on social media. The languages are breathtaking. When properly primed by a human, it can write creative fiction, it can generate functioning code, it can compose thoughtful business memos it's possible use cases are limited only by our imagination and then this and article goes on to talk about the, the misunderstandings of what exactly it can do but yeah maybe we could talk about that and you could talk about that because i haven't read so much about that what i was interested in was um so they have a gpt2 okay and that was a successor to gpt okay and so if we look at gpt2 which they talked about in february 2019 our model called GPT-2, a successor to GPT, was trained simply to predict the next word in 40 gigabytes of internet text. 
So you would look at this information and you would see the word banana and then what's the next word, okay? And it would look at loads and loads and loads of text, 40 gigabytes to be precise, and it would say the next word is gonna be Guatemala, okay? Because I use bananas in Guatemala a lot in teaching. Um, and it's a transformer language, blah, 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 blah. It's been trained on a data set of 8 million web pages. But GPT-3 has been trained on a set of much, much bigger uh, repository of text. And it's been using one of the sources, Common Crawl, which I only found out about when I wrote this microblog thing, which is a repository of, that is collecting years of crawled content. So you basically set a robot to go around the web, gather every single thing it sees, and put it all into a big database. Yeah. And then you can use that database of typical content on the web to start to train it in terms of how people speak and how language functions and all that kind of stuff. And so for me, what was interesting is it's the, the big data set plus the small data set. And so what Jordan has been doing is, for example, giving it presumably, and I need to talk to Jordan about this, but presumably giving it examples of Kurt Cobain, the, the former lead person in, in Nirvana. And then once it's been primed, you know, he then can have a conversation with Kurt Cobain. Yeah, most most and, AI uh, requires a level of training anyway, because the data exists, but it has to be trained to use that data in a particular way. So we did, some students did some stuff with IBM's Watson, which is an AI okay. technology, to um, make it act like it was a bank manager. So the game was sort of a banking game. And okay. so the idea was you'd, you'd, talk, you'd interact with the bank manager through text effectively. And then okay. through that training, it would respond like it was in charge of you know, the bank in, and it had the, that data set. And the thing with that as well is that the more you trained it, the better it got. So you, so most, from what I understand, and we haven't done much of it, but IBM are very keen in, in what, letting us use Watson to do stuff, um, is that the, the most of the time you need to spend with any of this stuff is the training. Once you've got that in place, then it kind of gets, sort of does its, it does its magic from then onwards. But it certainly sounded like it was quite hard to train. You know, you have to write, you have to write the thing to train it. You know, the program to train it. Um, yeah. This sounds like, from what I've seen in some of it, you can just ask it general questions, and it just will, it'll be answer it based on its knowledge of of text on the web. So, so one this example that it gave in this Forbes article was that it can it can handle straightforward, simple questions off the bat, but it gets confused. So. It was, it, I don't quite understand, I didn't understand, Forbes article isn't that great explaining what it's saying, but yeah, one of the things it says, like, so you ask it, how many eyes does a giraffe have? And it will respond and say, a giraffe has two eyes, so you type this in. And then it, then it goes on to say, if you say, how many eyes does my foot have? It will respond and say, your foot has two eyes. And it's, yeah. it's confused. Well, so for some one, one, one of the things that I was reading this morning is the kind of language that it can process is based upon what you would typically expect to find on a, a crawl of some web pages. Okay. So, for oh, example, yes, it's got you no and contextual I, awareness. yeah, you and I might say, for example, two times two is four, right? And so it'll be able to do that. If you said, what's two times two, it would say four, right? But it's not going to be able to, to say what's 1,396 times 2,432 because that's not a normal thing to say in conversation and it's not likely to appear on many web pages. Oh, and that's why right? if you say how many eyes does my foot have, it doesn't care yeah. that it just, foot... It doesn't really know because, you know... It doesn't know a foot, so it says, yeah. well, probably two because most things have two. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, for example, if you said to it, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's the square root of 
6,742. It wouldn't know the answer to that question because that's not normally something that people would say. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, sorry, Chris. I've just understood this now from what you've been saying. So basically, like, when you say how many eyes does my foot have, it understands there's two feet and probably two eyes. So it puts that together. Then when you say how many eyes does a spider have, it will go, oh, a spider has eight eyes. If you say how many eyes does the sun have, it says the sun has one eye. It's one object. I guess, and then it's like, and then the other one was like, how many blade eyes does a blade of grass have? And it's like, a blade of grass has one eye. I guess it's just, so it has no idea of yeah. the context of some of the questions, which is what. But people obviously were like hyping it to say it's going to take over the world. Well, if it can't... yeah, which is well, I think what was interesting and why I wanted to talk about it was there was an awful lot of kind of, um, uh, you know. Somebody had made an example, and I'll try and find it, and I'll stick it into it's the, the one, show it's the notes. I think it's in the Forbes one, where they're writing, and it's creating a layout. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so there's a couple of examples I've seen. One, it creates Google as like a search engine. And the second one is it creates a kind of almost like an Instagram-type application. Oh, right, you know, it's okay. like a photo feed. Um, it has big photos, and then underneath the photos, there's a username. And then beside the username, there is a like number. And sometimes it has a lot of likes, other times it has fewer. And then underneath that, there's some, some text written by the person who is the username. And then there are responses from other people. And then by describing all of this, it then builds that almost like before your very eyes in yeah. some kind of magic parlor trick type way, um, which is fascinating. And then a lot of people had seen this on Twitter. And as is always the case with Twitter, had just immediately jumped to the conclusion that that's it. Design is dead, right? Because you could just tell this thing what to build, right? Um, and then, you know, it took a, a while for some smarter people uh, I mean, Jordan hasn't been even sidetracked into that. He's just doing these really interesting explorations with conversations with people, which I have found fascinating. But Charles Burdett, my friend Charles Burdett, who's part of the School of Design community, super smart guy, he, he was, and, and numerous other people were jumping in and saying, look, this is not going to take over the, you know, it's not going to make designers redundant. And Jordan did talk about this, I think it was yesterday or two days ago. He said, you know, what it is going to do is take a lot of the legwork out of, of, of things. It's going to take a lot of the boring repeat work out of things. Um, and, and I can't, I said to Jordan, we need to have a conversation about this because I wrote about this a month or two back where I talked about above the implementation layer. Um, yes. Which is, you know, the implementation layer, which is where you put the, the bricks together to make things, that is going to be automated incredibly quickly. And where we're going to have to work as designers and as educators, teaching designers, is above the implementation layer. It's like, you know, why do we need this photographic app that we've just described right what purpose does it serve who's the audience what's the intent is there money involved all of these kinds of things we've just we've just realized that we can't train it to do yet because we say how many eyes does a blade of grass has have and it says one um you know so it's very smart at certain things but really dumb at other things um and so for me what was interesting was the number of people who were saying oh my word gpt3 it's going to you know, we're going to all be out of a job. I'm thinking, well, not really, because, it, you know, there's certain things that it can't do. But yeah. it, what it can do very effectively is boring stuff. Yeah, and I think, well, this is, for me, what's interesting about all of this, and it's the, um, and then there's lots of, there's people doing tons of this research and it connects to the research I've been doing, like people like Brett Victor and Froge Hegland, who are looking at the idea of um, tools at the speed of thought. Mm. So 
at the moment, like for me, what I find super frustrating is I will think about an implementation that I want to do, and I then have to abstract that into code, don't I? I have to sit and try and turn my thought process into this abstracted layer of code, which is then abstracted again to machine code. So, yeah. you know, at some point we've, we've built these languages that try and allow us to talk to the computer in a particular way. Well, why wouldn't you want a tool that remote, that takes that to another level where you can say, okay, you know, you can think about what you want to have happen and you can say, I would like two boxes. That, like at the moment I've been fiddling around with making connections in Node Noggin in different implementations. If mm. I could say to my computer, I need two boxes that have a Bezier curve that connects to them. And if there are additional Bezier curves, make sure that they don't touch each other. And it should build it for me. <laughs> I don't need... The computer's not taken away my job. The computer's facilitated my ability to make the thing I want to make Yeah. without without me having to abstract that into some weird programming language. Like, who wants to know what functions and variables are? No one really wants to know that, do they? Unless you're really into math, maybe. But even then, I don't think you want to know it. You'd rather just express it in a way that's... Which is what's interesting for me with this, is it's about using natural language, isn't it? And it can respond to that natural language in a way that's useful. That's why I like Fantastical, because I could just type in yeah, meeting it. tomorrow, yeah. next week. You know, that, that mm. keeps me in the hooks because it makes it really easy to put stuff in, you know? Yeah. Um, I think we should, language. We sh yeah, we should mention Fantastical um, because I use it and you use it. Um, although it does do some things a little bit crazily, like we had minus episodes and it thought they were lasting for months. Um, we should really get a screenshot of that actually as well but you can say to a um, meeting with adam tomorrow at 2 30 p.m one thing that it doesn't do very well i find a little bit frustrating is if i said to you say meeting tomorrow at 12 50 um you know in something or other it will default that to 12 50 in in the middle of the night and, and i'll kind of think well, look you know probably we could use a little bit of common sense injected here so that you know it but maybe i'm wrong maybe that no maybe that might be right do i don't know do you have your fantastical set to 24 hours or 12 hours though oh i don't know maybe i yeah. should check that because yeah. i have everything but i mean it's fantastic hours. you could say for example yeah. meet meeting with adam next week on tuesday at 2 p.m for 45 minutes in cafe nero's beside belfast city hall and it would take all of that and it would work it out and it would it would do it and if you were in the calendar or you were in my contacts it would add you to the list of attendees uh, now i think that where fantastical will come into its own is if you invest the time to build all the bits around it so that you take the time to make sure that adam proctor has a good contact entry yeah, yeah. so that it will pull it in and you know prioritize the right email yeah. so actually a lot of these tools really come into their own in terms of automation if you have worked on the surrounding tools that they work with yeah and that's one of the things i have problems with with my fantastical is because most of my contacts are in outlook yeah uh, so they're on the, they're on office 365 so i don't see i don't sync that to my phone yeah, obviously that would yeah, be insane yeah, yeah. Yeah. um and so sometimes it just doesn't it just won't find them and it depends yeah. sometimes the phone won't find them but the computer will and i don't understand now i, I know there's a translation to talk to office and whatever but, um, Possibly. That, that's a problem, too, because there's a really nice application called Bridge. Um, and I don't know if you, you well, you obviously know LinkedIn. Yeah. So the, the way that LinkedIn works is that, you know, 
I would come along and look at your page and I would want to connect with you and I might write a message and say, hi Adam, um, I'm Chris, I'm based in Belfast, I teach design, you teach design, I think it would be really interesting for us to chat. And you then get a message, you read it and you go, oh, okay, this sounds great. So you connect with me, yeah. right? And, you know, if I write a message to you, um, bespoke to you, I'm more likely to get a connection because you'll read it and go, oh yeah, this looks interesting. Or you may read it and go, no, I don't want to you to be in my network. Which is, which is also good for me as well, because, you know, clearly you're probably not li likely to be someone I want to work with, right? With Bridge, but, but there's no stopping us from building a massive network of complete lack of, that there's no value to the network, right? We could have, you know, 10,000 people in our network who we've just literally set up a bot to write kind of, well, we could use GPT-3 to write messages to people that contextually pull things out of what they do. Hi, Adam, yeah. I noticed that you're a bricklayer and I just recently was doing some bricklaying and I'd love to, you know, connect with you. Will you connect with me on LinkedIn? And it would go, yeah, and then I could send it to a plumber. Hi, Adam, I noticed that you're a plumber and, you know, some of my best friends are plumbers and it, GPT-3 would just do all that for us and we'd end up with 10,000 people, amazing, right? But the network is completely useless, yeah. right? Bridge ch changes that kind of idea, right? Someone has to vouch for you. Okay. So for example, if I wanted to connect to you, I'd have to look at the people who are connected to you, find somebody I know, and then say, hi, John. Um, John, you know me and you know Adam. I'd like to be introduced to Adam because I have a project coming up that I think he would be a good partner on. And then John would look at it and go, yeah, I think this is a good match. He would vouch for me and say, Adam, I think you should talk to Chris. He's a really good match. Yeah. Mm, and so cool. your network is now much, much better because it's based upon real world relationships, which is yeah. the way that all of this networking used to work before these tools came along. Right. Really good tool. OK. And so when Susan uh, O'Malley from IDEO, she's a director at IDEO, she did a talk for us um, as part of Propel. And at the end of the talk, Chris said, you know, if anyone wants to connect with Susan, um, she's on uh, Bridge and I'm on Bridge and I will put you in touch with her. But you have to persuade me to do it. You know, you have to explain to me what's the benefit to you because he doesn't want to just randomly yeah, yeah. put people in touch. So I contacted Chris and said, look, you know, I think she'll be really, really helpful for me because she's at IDEO. She does design thinking. I think design thinking is a big part of what I'm doing. And just the chance to have a chat with her would be fantastic. And he put me in touch with her. We're now connected. Anyhow, I applied to join the tool and all my contacts have to be in Google. No. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no way. No. And I've spoken a few times to, to their support people and said, look, my problem at the minute is all my contacts are in my uh, Mac contacts application, which obviously is quite privacy focused. And, and I, I will have to export everything and put it into Google. And I know you'll have problems with Google anyway. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I, no way would I put my contacts in Google. I'm not giving Google that information. That's bang out of order. Because it's like, as far as I'm concerned, they'll be hoovering up all the phone numbers and names of people that I know. And I, no way. They would be hoovering that all up. Um, and you wouldn't give it away even though your life would be easier. No, I would know because it's not, mm. no way. It's a really interesting conversation there for almost like another episode of the podcast that's all about... Um, I mean, that tool sounds great. I like the sound of it, but there's no way I'm using Google Contacts. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that for me is one of the things that's really interesting um, because 
it's a really good tool and the concept behind the tool is fantastic. You know, um, I think one of the best things that you leave with from art school is probably your relationship with your lecturers. You know, if you work at it when you're at art school and you are not a complete idiot and you, you know, you do your best and you learn and, you know, you're not a, an idiot about it. I'm trying not to swear here. Um, you know, then when you leave art school, especially in this connected culture, yeah. you, you know, you can contact your lecturer because those barriers have disappeared now effectively yeah. um, and say, is there any chance you could write a nice word for me for such and such? Um, and so you're not just paying for the knowledge, you're paying for the network as well. Definitely. And for me, that bridge is a much better model than LinkedIn. Yeah, but yeah, it relies yeah. on a, a, a Google, you know, contacts thing. And so there's people like you who just won't like that. No way. They just don't, yeah, don't make me put stuff into Google. It's interesting you should say that because I'm on this kind of quandary at the minute where I use Google to set up for the School of Design email. Um, and I partly did it so I could see what the G Suite is like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, because like, you know, it's very difficult for me to teach things without actually using the tools first. Um, and I saw, you know, one, and one of my colleagues on Propel was like, oh, you should use the G Suite. It's amazing, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, well, I'll give this a go. And so if you send an email to chris at the school of design.com, it's going into a big, massive Gmail box. Um, and, you know, there's some benefits to that in the sense that um, the spam detection is very good. Sure. Um, and what gets whitelisted and blacklisted is really quite good because the collection's very large, yeah. and the contacts could be put up there and stored everywhere and all that kind of thing. And I could use this tool bridge, but well, then the yeah. downside of it is you're giving away all this data. Yeah, I mean, yes, you definitely are. I mean, the, the, the other thing to check, though, is the recent G Suite terms and conditions, because when I last looked into it, there was something to do with using the education ones that they were not taking as much data. I don't particularly believe that statement but i think that that was what they were saying um however you know with learner analytics being the next big thing i suspect they will change their terms and conditions soon as to to, to so have that. tell me more about learner analytics well okay so learn well learner analytics is the idea of collecting data on uh, of a learner and their journey and using that using that information to be insightful in helping to um uh, probably and i'm going to li i'm actually i'm listening to a talk this week from uh stephen downs about the difference between personalized and personal learning i think learner mm -hmm. analytics is probably going to hoover stuff up to try and make it um personalized rather than okay. personal but the issue with a lot of this data is that they people want to use it to sort of try and predict like all, I mean, that's Google, all of Google's model is based on prediction. That's what they're working out. If they can predict the behavior of people, they can f they can extract more value from that information. So Google's mm -hmm. model is is prediction. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, so it's minority report, figuring out who's going to do what before they do it, so they can make money from that process. So the and what what is the difference between personalized and personal learning? Well, I think I'm going to find out more about this, but I think the idea would be personal is more that you take it's your individual sort of approach to things and whatever. I think personalized would be just mm -hmm. using data to try and make it like, you know, drive you in a particular direction. But I'm going to find out more from this talk. That's why I signed up for it, because he's a really good educator and, and he's been doing a lot of work on looking at the ethics of learner analytics. 
um, and has written quite a lot on that process. Oh, what's this guy called? Stephen Downs. He's from. Uh, he's a Canadian educator. Really okay. interesting guy. Um, done a lot. Most of his work, which is what I'm predominantly interested in, is around um, constructive social constructivism. So it's the approach of constructivism learning, but with the aspect of the web and sort of the social elements and how those things work together. So, so, and is this talk that he's doing? Where is the talk? It's like a, a Zoom thing, I think. Yeah. So, but I mean, is can anyone sign up for it or? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. It was. It was just, I found it on LinkedIn randomly through someone else, oh. and, I, and oh. I never find anything on LinkedIn, which is really weird. So it's a Zoom talk by Stephen Downs, and when is it? Friday, I think. Let me just look at my calendar. Friday at. I'm kind of intrigued because it it sounds like the kind of thing I would be interested in for sure. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely. It's tomorrow. Sorry, Thursday, four o'clock. Okay, Thursday. And it's called. Okay. It's called how to help student success by taking ownership of their learning online through personal learning so he's going to talk about the difference between personal and personalized and like i said i think personalized is going to be what the data analytics people want which is to push you through a learning path so something like linkedin learning will hoover up all this data and start to give you a personalized journey rather yeah. than a personal journey um and that's obviously the main issue with a lot of this stuff is it's going to it's going to gather it together to push you through. Mm. And then the bigger issue is then it tries to predict. So it tries to predict what you want next. And then the other, the kind of darker side of it, which I've read in you know, in the Guardian and whatever, is this idea that it could look at the, your history and mm. use that to predict where you're going to get to. So something like this, you know, yeah, an AI model would say, okay, you know, and so there's lots of things saying, well, we can work out that based on your current trajectory at the end of your degree, you are going to end up with this, qualification because that's we figured it out kind of thing which doesn't allow for any moments of wonder doesn't allow for change it just mean it tries to suggest that we're all robots to some degree and that we're going to follow a path you know and i just don't so i and also i don't want to know that stuff yeah i think that the, the problem comes in because i've looked at that before actually kyle uh dr carl boyd who teaches on the interaction design course with me um he showed it to me and i was like whoa what the hell um hell that's okay i think we can let that one slip because it's a place um anyway i looked at it and i was like what the hell kyle i mean i don't actually want to see that um and it was based upon things like attendance data and variety of other criteria in blackboard yeah. um and you know he said look you can very accurately predict what someone's going to get um and actually when you looked at the gr the predicted grades and then you worked your way down the list of people that the grades were predicted for you it was very hard adam not to say that seems pretty accurate to me um you know so it could say these people will get a first these people will fail these pe and but what it didn't allow for was as you said that moment where somebody realizes do you know what you know i need to change my ways you yeah. know and just, I remember they just stumble talk. across something and it just yeah. makes them do and different it just work. Unlocks you know? it and they're like, whoa, and now I understand it. I remember having this talk when I was at art, uh, just before art school with my mentor at the time who sadly died a couple of years later, Mark Sheverton. He's my art teacher and he knew I was passionate about art. And he's the one who sent me to go and see a Neville Brody exhibition. Uh, he knew that Neville Brody would be the person that triggered my love of graphic design. Um, and 
but he also knew that I was a terrible procrastinator and I was constantly getting distracted and you know and this is one f word we'll have to leave in here because it won't that it won't translate if we don't have it in here he was a devout christian and he went to church every sunday and i used to go to church with him as well um and he looked at me one time i remember of one of these big printing presses and he went for fuck's sake chris just finished that off and i remember thinking wow martin never swears so if he said that he's really concerned and you know i had to go right all this other stuff i need to put it to one side and i need to focus on this thing and that was really useful for me because it was a bit of a turning point um and that predictor grade thing does not allow for that no well it means that you know you might have he he might have looked at that and given up on yep. you and said well this student you know according to these things he's only got average students but it's like that interaction that moment so yeah, for me, I think that's the biggest problem with that is that they want to use that data to... That's all that data is about, is behaviour modification and yeah. behaviour prediction. All of Google's models on that, everyone's trying to rip that model off for whatever reason because they, if they can figure out what people are going to do, they can inter, they can intervene with that and do something. Yeah. You know, so, have, you seen, have you seen Gattaca? Yes. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Because the two brothers, isn't it? Two brothers and one has like some kind of gene... Yeah. Yeah, I saw it a long time ago, but yes, it's two brothers. One's got some gene that makes him really intelligent and the, and, or they give him the gene or something, yeah. I think it's something to do with his genes a bit faulty. Ergo, he will never make it um, and will not be allowed to go to space or oh, something yeah, so he, like that. Tr he does some tricking, doesn't he, to try and get... Yes, we'll something. have to watch it again. We'll have to watch it again. But the idea, I think, is that he has some kind of faulty gene. Ergo, he, there's no way he'll ever be able to do x yeah um but he wants to prove that he can do it um and the, the i think there's two brothers involved because i do remember a swimming scene where they swim and it's like across a bay or something and is you there know, a shark they never no there's no <laughs> shark they never that the idea is that you at some point you'll start to worry and you'll turn back oh yes i oh, yes um, I yeah. do remember and that. And there's a scene in there. In fact, I'm going to watch Gadiga tonight so that I can report back next week um, because it's the heart of that film. Chris, like is, Chris written... is secretly going to watch Jaws. <laughs> I can, I'd love to watch Jaws as well, actually. I remember watching Jaws when I was at boarding school and um, we all used to have to go into a, like a common room and it would be... Adam, it was actually on a film projector. Yeah, right? nice. it was like a real-to-real -real film projector, like a Super 8. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we watched it, blah, 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 like whirring and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sitting, and you know the scene when the boat f underwater or something, and then the body falls out. Yeah. Um, someone sitting behind me made a pillow go like this. <laughs> I nearly, I nearly, beep my pants. <laughs> You know, I could just do the beeps myself. The funny thing is you say that, Chris. So like the eight millimeter film things, right? So we have some of those as well. Some of those films on eight millimeter, like Close yeah. Encounters. And yes. A couple of others. Yeah. And they, uh, you may not have realized, but they're, they're not the full film. It's an edit because it doesn't fit on the reel. Oh, you're kidding me. So they're like edited. So when you watch there's certain scenes that are missing, it's really weird. So the first time I watched Jaws, <laughs> I didn't actually see the pieces, whole yeah. Jaws. Yeah, there was no shark. <laughs> It was just, a, it was just a, a film about a holiday town. Yeah, it's really <laughs> where nice. Swimming, where swimming stopped just for a short while and then resumed again. There's nothing else happened. There was no shark. Oh, funny. <laughs>
<laughs> Imagine Jaws without the Jaws. That would be so funny. That is funny. Anyway, returning to GPT-3 yeah. after a massive um, diversion there. Well, I think it's all for connected, me, actually, this time. It I is, think totally, connected. totally. So for me, what was interesting about the GPT-3 thing uh, for the benefit of, of listeners was that Jordan had had a conversation with Steve Jobs. So he'd invented a, or modeled a kind of Steve Jobs persona who he'd had a chat with. And I'd read the language and thought, this is very uncanny. It's almost like talking to the ghost of Steve Jobs. At which point I'd also been speaking to my students about, you know, what would it be like if we could learn from Steve Jobs? You know, he died uh, so many years ago. And what would it be like to have a tutorial with him or a workshop or something that was run by Steve Jobs? And I was using it as a thought exercise for the students. Uh, in my second year group at the time, because we were looking at education and learning and the future of education. And I'd asked some of the students, you know, what would it be like to be part of this community? There's only 10 people, but the pivotal figure in the community is Steve Jobs. Like what kind of money would that be to, to, to be learning from, from Steve Jobs? And it was a really interesting thought exercise because like he's dead. Um, but you know, I was kind of positing that he wasn't dead, that he'd, you know, he was living somewhere in Santa Monica or something. Anyway, it was fascinating. And then Jordan did this ex experiment and I thought, what would it be like if we had an art school with like dead mentors, you know, that we had built some mentors mm -hmm. like Walter Grapius or Eileen Gray or Buckminster Fuller. Um, and yeah. we'd use their language, their big corpus of language. Now, I don't think that Jordan, when he did his Steve Jobs experiment, um, he probably didn't go off and find every single word ever written by Steve Jobs. You know, no, his no. corpus of Steve Jobs was probably reasonably small, um, you know, because he's just trying an experiment. But imagine if you went and found Buckminster Fuller and you digitized everything by Buckminster Fuller and you fed it in so that as well as your gigantic common crawl repository that gives you the basic mechanics of language, you also had a, not a, not a tiny kind of training module for Buckminster Fuller, but a fairly substantial Buckminster Fuller, um, you know, corpus. You could then get a fairly accurate sense of a conversation with Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds super interesting because I was thinking about this, you know, we, we were, there was that post you shared before about books being useless, you know, not useless or whatever it was. I can't, what was that? Books? Anyway, something to let, you know, lectures being rubbish and books being rubbish because they're a passive material. It was a blog post by some... Oh, right. I can't okay. remember who... Can't anyway, remember what that we'll, was. We'll find it. You shared it on one of your, yeah. your newsletters. Um, right. And... Oh, it was by Andy Matushek, and he's actually been writing about that again, oh. and I'm reading it at the minute, and you should read it, because he talks about the fact that, you know, certain books have an aura above the core book, right? If you read a book, you, 100 people can read this book, but for some of those people, that book can be life-changing. Let's say for three of them, it's life changing, but for 97 others, it's not. OK, now the material thing at the, at the heart of the of the book is the same, but the impact is different. Yeah. And I, I haven't read enough of it yet to do it justice. But I think he's talking about in making text richer or something. But it's yeah. a really interesting article and I'll send it to you and I'll put it in the show notes. But we could maybe discuss it next week because it's fascinating. Yeah, that sounds cool. But I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I, but I was thinking then the idea because I was talking about this the other day to a student because there was there was sort of we were talking about how do you um you know how do you kind of keep pushing ideas on and whatever and i sort of you know got out i dragged out one of the books i pulled out of my uh, office and said you need to read this book which is the art the um uh, art of lenses jesse snell game design book 
basically gives okay. you methods to look at games. And it's just like, and I said, look, you just need to read this because this mm-hmm. is this is the rule book of how you do it. You know, this is how you make games really work for people you know, by looking through this. I said, but the thing is, you can, you know, reading it is is not that exciting. You need to have an application of that reading. You know, so you know, just maybe read it for ten minutes and then try and think how would I apply that in my thing because reading the text isn't going. It's not active. It's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. if you took this. GPT free model, whatever the thing's called. Yeah, I wish they can't. Why don't they just give it a name? Like, call it Dave. I know, I know. You know, I mean, Apple's been quite good at this, haven't they? Because, you know, they could call their chip the A10 or the A14 or whatever, but they call it like the bionic or the neurotic, you know, the (laughs) A13 neurotic. You know, I mean, they have these names and it's easier for normal humans to be able to grasp onto those things. And that's because Apple understand stories stories are important people do not remember gpt3 um whereas you know we know what watson is uh, ibm's watson yeah. um because it's called watson yeah. and we also know why it's called watson as well which is fascinating to me right um but we could be having this conversation and watson's quite old now it's yeah, like, yeah. when's that five years ten oh years? maybe longer yeah it's been around for maybe quite longer a while. yeah, yeah. But we we can remember its name because it's called watson whereas the gpt3 thing We'll not be able to remember this this name of this thing. We'll be saying in about two years' episodes worth of Uneducators, we'll be saying, do you remember that thing called GP, G something? G something yeah, exactly. back in like, was it 2020? And we'll not be able to remember it no. because nobody th- took the time to give it a proper name. Yeah. But if you it's fed crazy. if you fed that guy GPT three some stuff, <laughs> you know we should it, ask GPT three what would it choose to call itself. That should yeah, be an exercise that's a for question. Jordan. When you get API yeah. access, ask it that question. See what happens. You know what would you choose as a name for it's just yourself? Gonna, it's just going to look at the most common names, isn't it? And then it's going to look at the most popular names and come up with an answer. So it'll be something like magical or something or. Heavenly. Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't it be interesting know, if we just said to to you know, uh, GPT three. Um, in the West, certainly, names are usually a given name and a, and a surname. And your given name, in my case, is Chris, and your surname, in my case, is Murphy. But often, there are names in the middle which are used to refer back to relatives. And in my case, one is Colin and one is Martin. And Martin is my mother's maiden name. So if anyone wants to hack into my bank account, you've got that anyway. <laughs> um, you know, but in some countries, there are big, long middle names you know there's maybe 30 or 40 maybe not as many as that right but we then ask gpt3 how would it like to call what would it like to call itself what would it like as a given name what would it like as a surname and would it like some names in between and if so have a choice maybe it's two maybe it's five maybe it's 100 what name would it come up with it would be amazing because it might be you know it might be um joshua you know joshua rena james Johnson, Boris, Michael, Nielsen, Andy, <laughs> no, who something. Knows? Exactly. But I, but I think if you oh, took man. that stuff, you're talking about the Buckminster Fuller stuff, and you put that into that system, and students were able to ask, they're doing a project on grids or whatever, graphic design, they were able to ask questions that would get a response from the through the texts that yeah. around that that he wrote about and whatever. That would be That would be useful, wouldn't it? Yeah, for me, that was what I thought was fascinating about the whole idea was that, you know, you could have a conversation with, um, you know, I mean, I just picked some names from the past um, who were people who I thought I'd be interested in talking to them. Um, And I was also trying to also mention women designers as well, because, you know, I mean, the history of design is kind of, I would say it's very, very 
um, in favor of men, yeah. uh, which is completely ridiculous, you know. And also, it's like why I always call Charles and Rames, Charles and Rames. You know, a lot of quotations are dedicated to Charles. Um, and I think, well, that's actually not true because they were a real designer power couple, um, you know. And so when people say, bloody, bloody, blah, Charles Eames, I think, come on, you're being a bit lazy there, um, you know. And also, you know, so I mean, when I went back through the list and I actually I've just looked at it and realized I have one, two, three, three men and I have got one, two, three women, even though I have five names because Charles and Rames are one of them. So I have Eileen Gray. Um, died in 1976. So from the top, I have Walter Gropius, died in 1969. Eileen Gray died in 1976. Buckminster Fuller died in 1983. Charles, 1978. Ray Eames, 1988. And then Annie Albers, textile artist oh, yeah, from the 94. Um, and I just said, imagine adding these mentors to the School of Design's faculty page alongside the living mentors. Um, it might be the first design school with a faculty born in the 19th century that's teaching from beyond the grave in the 21st century. It's just for me, I thought it was a fascinating idea. Yeah, no, you know? definitely. It's very, very cool. I'm just trying to find it. Could... There was a really good women designers book that I got the library to get recently. That was amazing. I went into Belfast School of Art today because um, I was down in Obi and I was going back because I thought... I'd rather a podcast from home than in OB because there's not really anywhere that I can talk in OB without annoying people. Um, and as I was coming back, I was desperate to go to the toilet. And so I buzzed on the buzzer and they let me in and I said, is there any chance I could run to the toilet? And they were like, lots of big size. And then they went, all right, let's just don't let Andy see you because Andy's in charge of physical resources. And just as I said, they said, don't let Andy see you. Andy walked around the corner and he said, are you in to go to the toilet then? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. Uh, but as I was coming out the door, there is a giant thing, which is where you drop your library books. Oh, for like click and collect kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of ours has just yeah. started that actually. So the one I was thinking of, which is it's relatively new, it's 2019 it came out there is a book called design hers a celebration of women in design today and that's why i wanted oh, the library okay. to get it because i knew it was about like con contemporary women designers it's okay. got a, quite okay. a cool uh it's got a cool cover as well i might i, I might try and get that out of the library actually because I don't, I don't think that's one of the ones i brought home but it's, well yeah. for me for me it was really important that there was a balance yeah definitely um, no it's super and... important yeah, I think that the article that we're talking about, we need to go and read is this new essay by Andy Matushak with Michael Nielsen, illustrated by Maggie Appleton. So it is we've previously written about a mnemonic medium, which helps you remember what you read. Here we explore a different angle, extending a book in time to help it connect to lived experience. So how might one escape a book shackled sense of time, extending the authored experience over weeks and months? And they've been doing some really interesting writing with really beautiful illustrations as well. This one here has got yeah. a book open at the top and then the pages of the book fall down through the text. I mean, it's beautifully. It reminds me a little bit of the golden era of when we designed web pages to make them art directed was the phrase at the time you yeah know. well my my yeah. blog was supposed to be a bit like that and i commissioned like a student to do some work and they did a bit of work but it was um it was supposed to be a start of something but they sort of graduated and it didn't quite work out and yeah but i wanted it to be like that because i just love it when you've got great illustrations that go with stuff so 
Well, this was kind of really interesting because it was imagining the book and the future of the book and what about a book being, you know, it just there's a lot to be written around this area of books because, I mean, I think we've, and we've discussed this before in the podcast for sure, we've gone through this era where it's like Kindles are going to replace everything. And also libraries have gone through this period as well where they've thought like digital is the future, we may as well just scrap all these books and get rid of them. And one book I'm trying to track down just now is Double Fold by Nicholas uh, not Nicholas, Nicholson Baker. Okay. Um, Nicholson Baker, really interesting um, writer. Um, he wrote a book called um, The Mezzanine, which is my first book by him, where the footnotes outweigh the actual body copy. And this is a challenge that we're trying to fix on the School of Design site, which is why we haven't launched yet. You know, I would like there to be some posts that are just like two sentences and then 30 footnotes, you know, um, just for no reason other than having fun, right? But we're running into some issues with Eleventy and templates and things like that, where where um, Al, who's building the thing, super smart, is saying, right, we have to, on the main page where we list all the blog entries together um, as a kind of like bird's eye view, we can't have the footnotes. And I'm thinking, oh, no, that's the footnotes are really a you know, really core part of it for me. So we have to sort of square that circle. But um, anyway, Nicholson Baker, who wrote The Mezzanine and various other um, books, one of the books he wrote was Double Fold, which I had never heard of this before, but a double fold is where you fold, a, it's a librarian type term. Okay. You fold the corner and then you fold it back on itself and that's a double fold, okay? And you do that as many times as you can before it just tears off yeah or falls off right because if you fold it and 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 fold it eventually it will just it will just break yeah right and that will give you a fold number okay so we go one two three four and it's maybe say 136 right yeah now a brand new book is likely to have a higher fold number than a really old book Okay, because an old book's been around for a long time and the paper's maybe not as good as the current kinds of papers that we're using, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the whole book double fold apparently is to do with librarian, uh, library science and getting rid of books and the transformation of physical books to digital books and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, around the probably, I don't know, the 70s, 80s or something with the birth of the web and uh, the birth of uh, the growth of the internet and all of this kind of stuff, there probably would have been, a, a, you know, a rise of people saying, right, we can probably get rid of all these books now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. When the Kindle cool. came along, there was this experience, there was this kind of expectation that, you know, books are over. Yeah. No, so that's interesting. I think we should definitely talk about that on the next episode because there's a few things I can connect through. There were yeah. um, Alexander Ludovinko, who works at Winter School of Art, has been looking at the book and its format and its thing for a long time. Another guy called Danny oh, wow. Aldred uh, has done a few conferences. I was trying to find his com conference site. I built the website, if I remember rightly. I can't find, I can't find it now anyway. But that was... Um, and we've got an artist book collection at Winter School of Art, which are really uh, no interesting particular types of books. Um, Have so, you seen um, American Animals? Don't think so. Oh, you look, I think we need to stop because we're over an hour now. Um, you have to watch American Animals. OK, I will watch Gattaca. You have to watch American Animals. It's um, a, I'll find it on Letterboxd and then I can read you the Letterboxd description, Letterboxd 
America. I must have it. I've got all these subscribed channels now. And also, you must have it on all your things. I must. Also, Chris, can I ask you something while you're looking it up? I pay, yeah, I've, I've got I pay it. for all these channels. Yeah. Which obviously, you know, that, um, so I'm paying. But it seems to me that they still have all these adverts that are basically about starving children just all the time. <laughs> I'm like, I thought I paid to not have adverts and now I'm depressed every time between programs. <laughs> like, what am I paying for? <laughs> I've no idea. <laughs> so funny. Um, no, we're not starving children, clearly. But I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. You can teach a child to read and write for $50 a year. Okay. $50 will teach one child to read and write for one year. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So a part of my Kickstarter uh, that I'm going to be running for the School of Design I'm trying to build that in as, as part of it. I'm trying to build in, uh, you know, whether it's the Kickstarter or whether it's the accelerator coaching, you know, if you pay me the oh, 700 cool. pounds yeah. for the, for the, for the intense learning experience, which is like upskilling and mentorship, etc., I will pay for one person to read and write for a year. I, I have this idea that would just be when you learn, others learn or when I teach others learn or I don't know I'm still looking for a form of words but anyway American Animals which you have to watch okay 2018 film directed by Bart Layton Lexington Kentucky 2004 four young men attempt to execute one of the most audacious art heists in the history of the United States you've you've it's you've got to watch it because it's it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking it's all about art books in libraries okay. and the way the film is made is it's like very much blurs the line between fact and fiction and reconstruction and documentary and heist film. And it's a really, really good film. I think I've given it consistently a five out of five forever. Cool. I was just trying to find another thing as well, related, but this is related. So um, there's a Kickstarter going out at the moment, this thing called, I think it's called Foley's. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's basically someone I think who used to work at Mozilla and also does human, is also part of Humans Who Play, which is a really interesting design agency and lab. But they built this Kickstarter that is to make, um, it's a thing for kids to build like different structures. And it's really, you know, you can flat pack it and it looked really cool for like four years and up. Um, so I sent it to people I know who've got kids of that age. But part what's of that, it called? Foley's. Foley's, yeah. F-O-L-L-I-E-S. Building, big building shapes for big imaginations. So it's okay, like a, it's not Foley's, it's Follies. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so it connects together and you just build, you know, you sort of like a big sort of connects thing and you can make stuff. Anyway, in wow. her, in her um, Kickstarter, which is uh, all 60, 70% funded or something, um, yeah, they're looking big building shapes for it. big imaginations. But they're giving a portion of the money is going to like uh, a kids' charity. Great. So as part That's of what every, I want to do. Yeah, so it might be worth, I, just as an idea, you could see what she does. Because I watched the video and I was like, oh, these look really cool and fun. Um, and because I know someone who knew her, it was like, oh, that's great. I'm not buying one because I don't have my, my children too old. Um, but I did. Did you back her? No, no, I haven't yet. I mean, I might pick one of the tiers where you don't get something. You just get like okay. to be a friend. I think if you want to buy it, it's like it's a you know free few tiers up. You can do like a a high five or a be a fan stuff. It's so a dollar. I'll, it's one dollar for a for a virtual high five. 
Yeah, so I'll pick um, one of those probably because I thought it was quite nice. Um, but yeah, just yes, in the end of her video. Amazing. Yeah, it looks cool. At the end of her video, she just says, you know, and part of, a, of the funds will go to this, I think, a kids homeless charity or something in, in Washington. Yeah, so there's a charity called Room to Read. Um, I think it's called Room to Read. Yes, it's called Room to Read. And what I'd written here was learn to teach. Okay, so you're learning to teach other people, right? Opening up access to education has always been a part of my mission. I open access to the library to support as many people as possible, but I believe I can do more. And with your help, we can do more. $50 can teach a child to read and write for a year. We've partnered with Room to Read, an organization dedicated to educating as many children as possible to try and teach as many people as we can. And so a percentage of what we do through the School of Design goes towards Room to Read. Right, that sounds and really And for good. me, what I wanted to do was, you know, if someone pays for one of the mentoring things, they're paying for two people to learn, them plus a child. Mm, great. No, I like that uh, idea. I just think that's a really nice idea. It, it, it maybe takes a quite a substantial chunk of the, of the money, you know, like if I'm charging $700 for that, and 50 of it is going to charity. Um, that's like 7% of my income is going to go to charity. But I mean, I think it's a good idea. I mean, we'll just see. Yeah, totally. No, it sounds good. So how far are we away from getting your site launched and the Kickstarter thing? And then we will finish. Um, where we are at the minute is uh, Al and I spoke about meeting tomorrow. Um, we've been a little bit in, in a bit of a problem because... I can, you know, I'm still evolving what I'm doing and I'm still not 100% sure what I'm doing. What I am doing at the minute is I know I'm building a community. That's one part of it. And so there will be this playgroup and I've been dealing with Ben Mann, who's the guy who builds playgroup, the software, and having great conversations with him. Um, so there'll be a playgroup, which is closed access, but much richer than the library. And then some of the information will go out to the library, which helps as many people as possible. And then there'll be a closed Slack group, which is a new Slack. And I've even said to the people who I'm teaching this afternoon at half four, you will have to pay for access to this new Slack because it's a different thing. OK. Um, and previously, I'd said if you paid me the 700 pounds for the accelerator coaching, you'd get free access to the other thing. And I'm not saying that anymore because it feels like a different thing. Um, you know, it feels like there's a community of learners around 500 people. And we're all going to learn from people like Dan Mal and uh, Meg Lewis. And I've already had conversations with people who are definitely teaching uh, or most of them are going to be doing an in conversation with. So like a conversation with Dan Mal, who I spoke to on Friday. And what was interesting was Dan said, you know, look, if you want me to do a lecture, that's going to cost this many thousand dollars. But if you want me to just do an ask me anything type thing, that's going to be free. Because like a lecture takes ages to prepare, whereas a conversation doesn't take anything to prepare. Sure. You know, he's like, I will happily talk to you and your students and you don't have to, have to worry about paying me. And I said, OK, well, you know, this is maybe where I should apply a bit of common sense here. I mean, me teaching you about some of the stuff Dan talks about is cost me precisely nothing, you know, because it's just me extrapolating from that, adding my own experience and then teaching that. Um, and then maybe we make those evening talks with these designers more about their experience and what they learned. So it becomes a little bit more like the um, how I built this with Guy Raz, mm. you know, because all of these people have built things, whether it's companies or products or whatever. So I've now got these people in place. I think I'm ready to sort of say, here's our first um, lecture series. 
Um, and then the next thing I need to do is work out what the tiers are. I think that, you know, £1, £2, £4, 8 16 32 64 I think those tiers are probably like, you know, you just get access to the community. Sure. Um, I think when we get to £128, maybe you still get access to the community. Maybe you get an ebook or something. And then two, uh, 256 you know, maybe there's, uh, you can get something. Um, Greg, who one of the guys I was talking to today and mentoring, he said you could think about services as part of that. So if you're one of the people who paid for the 256, you would get like an hour of mentoring, um, it, you know, in addition to access to the community. Yeah, yeah. Now, Kara rightly said we'd need to work that out. How long would it take to do 256 people? I mean, that would take a substantial amount of time. But anyway, and then I think when we get to the tiers at 512, which is like you are real supporters of the school and you're going to get a box and inside that box is going to be stuff and it's all going to be beautiful. I'm going to pour my heart and soul into it. And then you'll be a founding member of the School of Design. Um, I don't know whether you get lifetime access or, you know, I don't know. I'll just have to work that out. Okay. You know? So this sounds like the site's got a little way to go, but the Kickstarter probably a little bit further then at this point still. So what we said yesterday, and I think we should do is the site's taken me a long time to work out. And so we're not launching the site because I'm still not working out what I'm doing. And what I said to Al yesterday was I'd like to get the site launched tomorrow if at all possible, because I could then write about it in the blog where people could go and read it. And then we could just build the site as we're, as people are reading about some of the mm -hmm. stuff, you know? So that's our plan. Our plan is to try and get that set up tomorrow. Cool. So it's all kind of go at the minute. Um, I do have an idea which, well, we will, will we stop recording at that point? Yeah, I reckon we can do the future books next week. 100%. I'd love to do the future books next week. And I'll send you that article and I'll put it in the show notes. So I'm going to hit stop recording there.